is the word of the Lord. Good evening, everybody. My name's Graham, and I'm a lecturer at Moreland College. That's my job. I love it. It's a great thing to do. Uh, this week, this week we're on a break, but we're getting ready for next semester. And one of the subjects I'm going to do next semester is called worldview. Uh, I really like that subject. It's a lot of fun learning about the different ways that people see the world and how that interacts with how we see the world as Christians. Last time I ran this course at another college, we had a segment in the subject was kind of like show and tell, really, theological show and tell, if you like. Every week, the students would bring in something or tell us about something and the worldview of it. So it might be a movie they'd seen or a book they've read or all sorts of things. One guy every week brought in a different type of metal music. I didn't realize there were so many types of metal music. But each week he would explain that particular genre in great detail and he would try and talk about the worldview of it and then he'd play us an example. And uh, it's an acquired taste, I think, metal music. Uh, every example he played sounded like a whole bunch of screeching and then some crashing and then some actual screaming. And basically they all sounded like a multiple car pileup to me. But, but I'm ignorant. I'm uneducated. I did learn a little bit about metal and the many, many, many types of it but I still didn't quite become a fan. Another guy one week, I always remember, he said, I'm, I'm going to talk tonight about zombies. And I thought, oh, well, another opportunity for education for me. And now I've never seen a zombie movie. I'm a little bit concerned about how many he'd seen. Apparently, there's some kind of thing that was alive but isn't alive anymore, except it's kind of half alive. So it's sort of half living and half dead. So he explained again in some detail about the worldview behind that particular genre of movie. I still haven't seen any, and I'm not planning to see any. But when he got to the bit where he talked about things that are alive and half alive, actually that reminded me, as I, I remember that as I was preparing for this passage, because the Gospel of John is written so that we might believe in Jesus and by believing have life in its, his name. So it's all about believing and life. And I think based on this passage, what we see here is people who kind of believe in a version of Jesus and some of them are kind of alive, but it's not exactly the kind of life that Jesus has in mind for them. Uh, their faith hasn't quite grown to the point where they're really experiencing the life that the Gospel of John was written to bring. So that's what we're talking tonight about tonight. Life, what it means to be really alive, and we're doing that from John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. So we're making our way through the Gospel of John, chapter 1, uh, the introduction of Jesus, the Word becomes flesh. That's a pretty famous part of the Bible. Chapter 2 is the first sign, water's turned into wine, and then the clearing of the temple. Chapter 3, there's a long discussion. Uh, Jesus has this dialogue with a Jewish leader named Nicodemus. Chapter 4, there's another one just like that, but with a very different sort of person, a lady, a Samaritan lady. So chapter 4 is this long dialogue. Then we move into chapter 5. We have the third sign, the healing at the pool. 
And chapter 6, that's where we are now tonight. Massive chapter, 71 verses. If you're ever in New Testament exegesis, pray that you don't get assigned this chapter as, as translation for homework. 71 verses. I'm only going to have time to deal with really the first part of the first half of it tonight. It's, Matt's going to come in next week and finish it off. So it's a bit like, it's a bit like volleyball. I don't know if you've ever played volleyball. There are three basic moves. Dig, get the ball up in the air, set, pop it up nicely, spike, slam it over the net. So this is kind of like the dig and maybe the set. And then Matt's going to come in next week and and slam the rest of the chapter. So feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water. That's the bit that we're looking at tonight. Two of the signs that Jesus did. So Jesus has crossed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and a great crowd of people has followed him there. Because they've seen the signs that he's done. They've seen uh, the ones that we know about that are written in the Gospel of John. There were plenty of others that Jesus did that John didn't write down. He chose these ones for a reason. But the other ones the crowd have seen, so they're pretty keen to, to keep seeing that. So they follow Jesus over out into the wilderness. And John tells us the Passover festival was near. Now this particular miracle, it's one of the few that's in every single gospel. It's one of the few that's in every single gospel. So why did John choose this miracle and put it in here when he had so many to choose from that you know, he couldn't write the books, needed to write them all down. Could, the world couldn't hold that many books. So John chose this miracle. And I think when you compare his version of it, his remembering of it with the other gospels, it gives you a clue why. And here's, I think, a reason why this miracle is in the gospel of John and why John chose it. The Passover festival was near. Now, to us, that doesn't mean too much, perhaps. You know, it's like, what's the time? It's just a time marker, maybe. Actually, I think that it's important because the Passover reminds us, here's the famous character in the Passover. That's Moses, isn't it? Everybody, you know that story. So the Passover reminds us of Moses. And there's going to be a few Moses-like things happen over the next couple of verses. So he's gone out to the wilderness, another tick uh, for Moses, another thing that reminds us of Moses. He's going up on the mountainside, another thing that Moses did. The Passover is near, another thing that reminds us of Moses. Jesus looks up in verse 5, sees the crowd coming, and asks Philip a question. That's not in the other Gospels. That little discussion with Philip is not there. Uh, John was an eyewitness. John remembered that, and he put it in here for a reason. So, so Jesus says to Philip, who's a local boy, he's from this region, so maybe he knew how to solve the problem. Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And Jesus asked this to test Philip. He asked it to test him because Jesus already knew what he was going to do. Now, this is not a pass-fail kind of test. It's more of a how-are-you-going type of test. How is your faith developing type of test? I think that's why Jesus asked Philip the question. What's, going, what's on Philip's mind? Uh, what, what's he thinking about? What comes out when Jesus asks this question? Philip's first response is to look at the number of people and start to do a rough head count. There's 5,000 men, so even more women and children. Who knows how many people are really there? And he's beginning to think bits of bread, servings per person, and he can almost see the numbers sort of churning over in his mind. And it, the final number is pretty big. It's, well, for us, it would be tens of thousands of dollars to feed these people. So there's a problem. Uh, Philip is there. Philip is asked a question, and Philip's first thought is the money. 
how much is this going to cost? How are we going to solve this problem? The difficulties, the, the challenges that are there, that's Philip's first response. So I think that does tell us a little bit about Philip's faith. Because Philip has seen a couple of miracles. Plenty of people have seen plenty of them at this point. Uh, Jesus has already turned water into wine. Uh, he's healed an official's son. He's done a whole bunch of other stuff. But Philip doesn't really take that anywhere. It's kind of like that never happened. Now we've got this problem. The first thing that we think about is the money behind it all. So Philip's faith is, we might say, a work in progress, perhaps. It's a work in progress. Despite having seen those miracles, uh, he, he doesn't connect that with anything. And he doesn't see this as an opportunity to glorify God. He sees it as a problem to be solved. And I wonder how many of us have that same kind of type of faith, where when something goes wrong or there's some challenge that we can't meet with our own resources, our first idea is to manage it, to organize it, to control it, to budget it, to, to contain it somehow. Or, or if we can't, to throw up our hands into the air and say that it's impossible. Uh, we don't quite get around to thinking of things as an opportunity for God to show his glory. Now, I, I've been the pastor of a church, so I've sat on my fair share of risk management meetings. And they're not really my favorite meetings. I'm very thankful for the other people who do that now because I don't have to do it. Uh, if somebody's got to be on that committee and there's no one else to do it, okay, I'll do it. But I, I'm not going to volunteer for that. I, I'm not saying that's a, that we shouldn't have that. Of course we should have a, should be tripping over cords and of course we want to put the chemicals away where the kids can't get to them. And of course we do all our child safe training and all that sort of stuff. But the committee I want to be on is the one, the, the imagination committee, the opportunity committee, the group of people sitting around praying and thinking, wow, this is a really difficult situation. I wonder what God's going to do. I wonder how, how God will show up here. What might happen? What, what way could God glorify himself here? So wherever that meeting is, I want to be part of that meeting. The people who see something and then wonder what God's going to do. That was one of the great things about being overseas, uh, being a missionary, if you want to use that word, is that often we didn't, didn't have the answers. We didn't have the resources. We weren't entirely in control of the situation. We didn't know exactly what was going on. And often those were the times when God would show up and we would be forced to pray <laughs> and throw ourselves on his mercy and ask for him to intervene in some way because it was beyond us. Uh, a classic example of that was uh, one time around Easter, somebody had the bright idea of, uh, well, let's have a Passover meal in English and Arabic, and we can invite our local friends, and it'll be a bit like a Passover meal, and we could show bits of the Jesus film, and we could eat some food together, and maybe we could read from the Bible, uh, uh, you know, this kind of half-formed idea, and, and that sounds like a good idea. Let's give it a go. In that part of the world, see, uh, other people, Muslim people, they're always having feasts, they're always having festivals, and, and Christians actually look pretty lame compared to that. We don't, we don't do enough stuff together. We don't feed, feed crowds enough. And so we thought we'd give it a go. We don't know exactly how it works. Nobody's ever done this before, but we'll put something together and we'll get people to invite their friends. But, but don't make a big noise about it because we don't know exactly how people are going to respond. So just invite people you know well. 
So we come to the night and, uh, you know, everything's happening. It's all getting ready. People are walking in. And one of our local friends said, oh, I've invited my cousin. And I thought, oh, that's okay. I mean, this is my thinking. I'm thinking this while I'm talking. Uh, that's okay because cause they know each other and they're related. So that's not a big deal. He, his cousin's probably a good guy and is unlikely to be offended. Oh, great, great, you invited your cousin. And, and then this guy said to me, and my cousin invited his boss. And I thought, oh, oh, okay. Now it's someone we really don't know. And I wonder what that guy's agenda is. Why would he want to come to something like this? Is he just coming to cause trouble? So this is my thinking while I'm having this conversation. So I said to this guy, who is your cousin's boss? And he named somebody whose name I recognize because it's in the paper all the time. Because he was the leader of the main Islamic opposition party. He's a religious scholar. He, he is an Ayatollah. That's his job description. And, and he is an ultra-conservative religious scholar. So this name came out in the conversation. And I, ha, ah, ah, how wonderful that you've invited the leading Islamic conservative cleric to our little gathering. Woohoo! Woo! So... You know, I, I put on my best pastoral straight face and, you know, thank you very much. Well, we're looking forward to that. And inside, I'm freaking out. I'm thinking, wow, prison ministry, that's looking good, hey. And uh, so the meeting gets underway and people are eating and they're watching watch a bit of vi- Jesus video. We eat and watch with that sort of thing. And then three Mercedes roll up, like three of them, just like in the movies. And out sweeps this guy with a black turban and black robes. He's an Ayatollah, that's what they wear. And his entourage of minders. And in they come. And, and so they walk into the building. We're all in the middle of everything. Everything stops. Everybody's quiet. People, are, uh, they're halted with food halfway to their mouths because they see this guy walk in. They all recognize him. He's very famous. And they think, oh, uh, where's the nearest exit? You know, you can see what they're thinking. And I'm thinking things like that too. And then the guy goes, hello, everybody. I'm so glad I could come. This big smile, he's happy to be there. And everybody just breathes this sigh of relief and then we get back into the food. Uh, he didn't stay very long. He sort of walked around, he shook, shook everybody's hand, he had a bit to eat, he watched some of the Jesus movie. I don't know what he took in, what he didn't, but he came along because he, I don't know why, he wanted to be there, he was invited, maybe he was checking it out, I don't know. But things like that where you're not in control and where God is in control and the only thing you can do is pray they're actually opportunities for your faith to grow. They're opportunities for, for God to show up and do his thing, which is way better and way cooler and way more interesting than your thing. It's also way more terrifying, but it's way better. It, if we don't live like that, if we live a life where we only do what we've always done with the people we've always known in the area that we've always been in and we've got it all managed and organized and controlled then that's, I'm not sure that's really the kind of life that John had in mind when he put his gospel together. Because that's, that's the kind of life that Philip has, and I don't think Philip actually passes this test. There's no grade attached to Philip's answer. It's not that kind of test. It's not a pass or fail thing. But I, I think from the way it's put and what happens after it, we see that Philip's faith was still a work in progress. So that's the first thing I take out of here away from this passage, that when things are out of our control, that's an opportunity for God to step in and for us to see him at work. 
So what happens is uh, Philip says, uh, we can't afford to feed these people. A couple of the other disciples find the famous uh, five loaves and two fish. Jesus has everybody sit down on the grass and then he takes the loaves, he prays and he distributes it and he does the same with the fish. So Jesus provides for the people. Again, this is another huge Moses hint being dropped here. You know, we've had into the wilderness, that's a hint. Up on the mountain, that's a hint. Passover is here, that's a hint. Now feeding the crowd, that's a hint as well. Because one of the famous stories of the Passover, you might remember it, there's a whole thing about manna from heaven. There's a whole thing about the people being hungry, Moses praying, and God sending from heaven manna and quails for the people to eat. So now there's another Moses hint dropped here. Jesus breaks the bread, he breaks the fish, he hands it out. He keeps doing that until 5,000 plus people are fed. So how did that work? I wonder at what point the disciples realized what was going on. Because something is coming out of nothing. You know, not quite nothing, but the five loaves, Jesus keeps breaking them and breaking them, and more bread somehow keeps appearing. The more he breaks it, the more there is. It just, he just makes it out of nothing. The, the five loaves wouldn't have gone among five people, let alone 5,000. So Jesus here is making a very big pile of bread and fish, a big pile of something, out of nothing. Now that hasn't happened very often. It, it kind of defies some of the basic laws of the universe, one of which is you can't make stuff up. You can't mass, uh, you know, stuff can't be created or destroyed. I mean, it can turn it into energy, but you can't, you can't make it. Well, unless you actually made the whole universe. <laughs> you know, Jesus wrote those laws. He designed those laws. He put them in place. And now he's actually rewriting. He, he can do what he likes. He, he makes something out of nothing. So this is a huge thing here. Uh, this hasn't happened very often since Genesis chapter 1. That was the last time that somebody made a whole lot of something out of nothing. So this miracle is not just you know, a neat party trick. It's a really profound thing that's happening here. Uh, I think the significance of which was probably lost on people who were busy stuffing their faces with the free food. But later on, John reflected on. So Jesus makes, gives thanks, breaks the bread, distributes it, a, a bit like Moses, but way better. Moses prayed, the manna came down, but Jesus prayed and he created the food himself. So Jesus is the direct person responsible for this in a way that Moses wasn't quite with the manna in the Passover in the desert. So the, Jesus, this is a lot like Moses, but it's very significantly different as well. You know, Jesus is not just slightly better than Moses. He's on a different level. They're on a different level, these two guys. So the food is made. The food is distributed. Uh, the food is collected back, 12 baskets of leftovers. I, know, I don't know why 12, because uh, 12 tribes maybe, because... Twelve disciples were given the job of cleaning up, maybe. I, I think the actual, the main point in collecting the leftovers is again a contrast with the whole manna quail desert thing. Because if you know that story, you know that people were told in the morning to go out and gather the manna, enough to eat, 
Don't gather too much or it'll go off. Of course, some people did that because that's just what people do. And that's what happened. It went off. So here is very different, isn't it? Actually, instead of the leftovers going rotten straight away, the leftovers are collected and not wasted because they're still good to eat. So that's another way. It, it might seem like a trivial thing, but I think in the, the context of the passage, it's actually another clue, another hint that this guy is a lot like Moses, but way, way better. Because Moses you know, created, not really, he was responsible for the manna coming down, the manna rotted. Jesus made the bread and, and it persisted. It was still good to eat. So Jesus' miracle is much greater than Moses. So there's a lot of Moses stuff happening here and a lot of dots are being connected. What happens in verse 14 after the, bar- the loaves have been collected again, the 12 baskets come back, people saw the sign Jesus performed. They began to say, surely this is the prophet who is going to come into the world. That's another Moses thing right there. Because Moses, which is now centuries ago by the time Jesus was, was doing all this, he had written down that a prophet was to come. And people, maybe they've, maybe they've connected the dots. Wilderness, mountain, sitting down, feeding, dot, 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 prophet, dot, dot, dot. This is the prophet who's coming to, going to come into the world. They want to make Jesus king by force. So they connect these dots and then sort of extrapolate, extend that line. Uh, wilderness, feeding, prophet, uh, now, aha, Moses, remember, he got freed us from the, from the Egyptians. This guy, dot, 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 extending the line, he's going to free us from the Romans. Let's, let's go now. Let's go together. There's like 5,000 of us plus. Let's go to Jerusalem and, and chuck the Romans into the ocean and put this guy on the, on the throne. And it's free fish sandwiches forever. That's great. Let's do that right now. Let's make Jesus king by force. Wrong idea. Wrong idea. Again, they've, they've kind of got a belief in Jesus, but not quite understanding what Jesus is on about. I think there are three problems with this statement. The idea that we're going to make Jesus king. That's, that's the first problem. We don't make Jesus king. First of all, kings don't get appointed they don't get voted in. That's not how kings work. You're born that way. That's it. You become that when you grow up. You, know, you, you, you are a king. You don't get voted in as a king. That's the wrong system. So first of all, you don't make someone a king. They are a king. And, and especially you don't make Jesus a king because he's already a king. He, he reigned in eternity past. He is reigning as this story is unfolding. And he will reign in the future. We don't make Jesus a king any more than, uh, just going off what Jono said last week, we don't make Jesus a king in the same way that we don't make a lion fierce or, or, or powerful because the lion already is that. And just because I decide to label him fierce doesn't change who he is and make him any fiercer than he already is. The lion is that, and what I do is I recognize it and I run away. We don't make Jesus king because he already is king. So sometimes we, we fall into that language, making Jesus Lord of your life. And, and I understand how, what we kind of mean, but actually there's more to it than that when you think about it. You don't make Jesus Lord of anything. He is already Lord of things. He's already Lord of everything. All that I do is I recognize 
that I have failed to recognize that. I repent. I acknowledge that I've been a rebel, a, a traitor against his rule, against his reign. And so I, I recognize that he's a king. I don't make him a king because that's what he already is. So that's their first mistake, thinking that they can somehow make Jesus a king. Do him a favor. You know, promote him. Promoting Jesus doesn't need, doesn't need our likes. He doesn't need a recommendation on LinkedIn. He, he is the king. I'm a rebel and, and I recognize his rule, which or is already there. I, I don't somehow make him something. So that's their first mistake, thinking they can make Jesus king. Second mistake, thinking they can make Jesus king of their country. That if we just all now trek down to Jerusalem, put him on the throne, then all our problems will be solved. We're sick of the Romans. We're sick of their nonsense. Let's try and make Jesus king of our country. Way too small a role for Jesus. It's like saying to the prime minister, oh, prime minister, I really want to, I like you. You're a great guy. I want to make you neighborhood watch coordinator. Yeah. I'm sure he'd do a good job, but actually he's got a better job to do right now. He's got a bigger job. He's got a more important job. Maybe one day when he retires, he'll do that. I don't know. It's, I don't know. He might do a good job. He seems like a good guy. It's, but right now, he's got bigger things to do. And it's the same with this, this problem here. This, their vision of the extent of Jesus' rule is way too small. They think our problem is the Romans. Jesus is going to solve our problem. We'll make him... Uh, king of this little bit of the map that we call home. No, no, no. Uh, Jesus is not here to solve our problems. He's not, he's not like some kind of genie where I rub the lamp and then the, the supernatural being appears and I get three wishes to solve my, solve my, my hunger problem, solve my political problem, solve my other problem. No, no, no. <laughs> he's not here to solve my problems. He's not here for that. His, his vision, his, his rule, his reign is so much greater than any particular place, than any particular country, no matter how wonderful that country is. Uh, do we ever make that mistake where we think, I've got a problem, Jesus is powerful, Jesus is here to solve my problem. He's not here to solve your problem. He's here because he's king and we recognize his reign. And the third problem, the third mistake they made is that they think they're going to make him king of their country. That's the first and the second one. The third one is by force. That somehow, yeah, we're pretty strong. We're pretty tough. There's 5,000 of us. We've got muscle. If we go down there right now, we can sweep away the Romans. And, and, and our might and our strength is going to do Jesus such a great favor. You know, we'll get him something that he hasn't got. And we'll achieve something through our power and our strength. And at any time people have thought that, that somehow our force, our might, our strength is going to do the kingdom of God a big favor, it's always ended in tears. So, you know, we teach church history, and one of the less happy episodes of church history is called the Crusades, where a whole bunch of people in Western Europe thought, let's extend the kingdom of God by force. We'll go down to the Middle East. We'll put a whole bunch of people to the sword, and we'll be doing God a favor. Actually, it was a disaster. And it's still a disaster that we're paying for now in that part of the world. Uh, in the Second World War, people thought that God was on their side. When the Germans marched across, across Europe, across Russia, across North Africa, the buckle of their belt, the German soldiers, was actually stamped 
with God mit uns, God with us. That's what they thought. Uh, that, that sounds like a crazy thought to us. But that's literally what was stamped on the buckle of their belts. And still people today, not so much in this country, but people I've met from other countries, they think that you know, free market capitalism, liberal democracy and, and our way of life and our flag, that's the kingdom of God. And the more we extend our military might, the more we extend our influence, the more we extend, the, more, the, the greater we can spread the kingdom of God. No. It's never worked. It didn't work in John chapter 6. It didn't work in the Middle Ages. It didn't work in the 1940s. It's not working now. Our force, our might, our strength, God doesn't need it. He's, he's almighty already without us. Thank you very much. He's, he's quite capable, really. He doesn't need us to, to get out the guns to think our force is going to do something good for the kingdom of God. And if anybody tries to get you caught up in one of those schemes, it's a good time to search for the exits and leave that room. So the people, they believe in Jesus, sort of, but then their understanding of what his life means and what living with him means has gone in a completely cack-handed direction. So what happens next is Jesus, well, he runs away, more or less, verse 15. Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself, so further up the mountain. Jesus doesn't want to have anything to do with their scheme, with their plot, with their coup, whatever you want to call it. He's out of there. Thanks very much. He's off up into the mountain. And then he sends the disciples away as well because a couple of them were from that kind of political background and I guess he doesn't want them to get caught up with you know, the excitement of it all and the idea of installing Jesus as king and beginning giving out uh, you know, front bench cabinet roles amongst themselves as they march down to Jerusalem. So, so fellas, get on the boat, onto the boat, everybody, uh, out to sea with you all away from this crowd, and I'm going to head up into the mountain to get away from this very idea that force can be used to extend the kingdom of God. So the disciples are safely out in the boat, and Jesus is up on the mountain. They're heading over to the other side of the lake, and he wants to catch up with them. So he walks on the water to catch up, to, to be with them. That's, that's a big deal, a walking on water. It's, it's not often been done well, really, has it? Again, the laws of physics are being rewritten on the spot. The original author is there and he's changing them as he sees fit. Now, why, why walking on water? Why do that? Well, I guess it was a... It was a shortcut. It was a way to catch up. But actually, there's a few other things going on here. Let me read to you a little bit from Psalm 77. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. This is written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. So that's, that's a, an ancient poem from the Psalms, Psalm 77, hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Somebody talking about God and his greatness, talking about him walking through the waters. Psalm 77. I don't know whether any of the disciples realized that at the time. And again in Psalm 107, this is talking about the different ways that people have seen God at work in their troubles. Some went out into the sea in ships. There were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. 
For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like, staggered like drunkards. They were at their wits' end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm. And he guided them to their desired haven. That's Psalm 107. So this whole walking on water thing is not just a convenient way to catch up with the guys who are on the boat. I think it's another sign. A great big flashing neon sign for anybody who's watching. That what's going on here is big. Things that were said about God in the Old Testament, now Jesus is doing right in front of our eyes. Jesus is much more than the prophet who is to come. Moses was pretty good. You've got to admit it. He was great. He looked forward to a prophet. Moses, Jesus is even greater than what people imagined. He, he's divine. He can make something out of nothing. He can rewrite the laws of physics, things that only God can do. He does again and again and again. So we've looked at just two of the miracles the signs that John records. And when you read John and you read particularly at the end, you realize that he wrote these. He, he curated them, I guess, is the trendy term, isn't it? He curated these signs so that we might believe in Jesus and by believing have life in his name. So what is it that we believe exactly? What we believe is that Jesus is divine. He does things that only God can do. Not just once, not just twice, but over and over again. Things that haven't been done since the beginning of creation. Things that only God could do. Jesus does those without breaking a sweat, without even noticing. He just does it. Jesus does things that only God can do. That's what these miracles tell us. That's what they show us. What sort of life does that bring to us? When we, when we think about that, when we take that in, when we absorb that, when we believe that, how does that change the way we live? How does that change our worldview, the way we look at things? Well, we don't want to be like Philip who only saw the problems and the costs and the difficulties and, and, and didn't even get around to thinking that God could do anything because it's just a problem. We don't want to be like the crowd who thought, this is great, uh, let's do God a favor and make him our boss. We don't want to be like that. We want to be people who see a, an obstacle, a, a place a, where our power is limited, a, a circumstance where we're helpless as, as actually an opportunity for God to, to show his glory, to show up and do the stuff that God does, to do his God thing. We want to be people who live like that. We want to be people who live for the kingdom of God, not just, not just a dirt thing that you can color in on a, a map in a geography lesson, but a kingdom that spreads over the whole world that's much bigger than any particular country or particular culture. That's the kind of life that God has for us. That's the kind of life that believing in Jesus brings. A life of uh, opportunity, a life of understanding God's power, a life of living for God's kingdom. I don't know you. I can't even see you tonight. I can't tell what looks on your face. Only you know whether you're actually believing in Jesus like that and living like that. You have the life that God wants you to have. Uh, I'm going to pray. If you want to chat about that, we've got the Q&A coming up. 
uh, Matt, anybody you see here, anybody you know at the church, is more than happy to talk to you and to pray with you and to follow it up so that you can believe in Jesus as he really is and live the life that he calls us to live. Uh, But for right now, I'm going to pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for John and what he wrote down for us, the things he remembered that bring out different ways of looking at Jesus, different ways of understanding him. We thank you that Jesus is all-powerful, almighty, that he can create something from nothing, that he can upend the laws of physics, the laws of nature. They mean nothing to him because he wrote them and he can rewrite them. And we pray that you would help us to believe more and more in Jesus like that. We ask too that you would help us to live lives dedicated to his glory and to his kingdom, not our problems, not, our, not the things that he needs to do for us, but what he is doing in the world and how we can be part of it. So help us to believe, help us to have faith, and through believing, have life in his name. Amen.